Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Today's speaker is Robert Sykes, and he is talking about the strange death of Liberal England. Part B. I realised I'd, I'd left out uh, one of the quotes that I quite like, so I'll, I'll restart with that. And it's, it's um, Dangerfield trying to define what he may, means by liberalism. To some extent it means the Liberal Party, but it's also a wider set of values and beliefs and, and so on. And, and this is his definition. Whatever his political convictions may have been, the Englishman of the 70s and 80s, that's the 1870s and 80s, 80s, was something of a liberal at heart. He believed in freedom, free trade, progress, and the seventh commandment. You all know which one that is, don't you? He also believed in reform. He was strongly in favor of peace. That is to say, he liked his wars to be fought at a distance. (laughs) And if possible, in the name of God. In fact, he bore his liberalism with an air of respectable and, and passionate idiosyncrasy, which was said to be typical of his nation and certainly typical of Mr. Gladstone and the no- novels of Charles Dickens. Back to 1914, he entitles this section of his book, The Crisis, January to August 19, 1914, but the first chapter is Mutiny at, at the Curra. Uh, which is the headquarters of the British Army in Ireland. Now, in January 1914, the third Home Rule Bill is on its way. There's vague talk of excluding Ulster uh, on a temporary basis, maybe, a permanent basis, but nothing's sort of written down. The government plans to move some regiments into Northern Ireland, which is where, obviously, most of the Ulster Protestants are. And this is what happens. There were a disproportionate number of Irish Protestants in the officer corps and also in the general army, uh, disproportionate to the size uh, of Ulster. He then basically details a dilemma. The picture which immediately leapt to the mind of the generals was one which a series of orange orators had for some time been impressing upon the public. It was a picture of English soldiers conscientiously annihilating a citizen army which advanced against them under the Union Jack singing God Save the King. And this rhetorical oleograph, with its several qualities of farce and tragedy, of cheap theatre and overwhelming fact, was not merely ridiculous but bewildering. The generals went away to their own officers, and before midnight of the 19th, two telegrams had reached the war office from General Paget. Quote, Officer commanding 5th Lancers, ran the first, states that all officers except two and one doubtful are resigning their commissions today. I fear some same conditions in the 16th Lancers. Fear men will refuse to move. Regret to report, ran the second telegram, Brigadier and 57 officers, 3rd Cavalry Brigade, prefer to accept dismissal if ordered north. This was mutiny. General Goff, who commanded the 3rd Cavalry Brigade at the Curra, knew it was mutiny. Dangerfield paints this in very dramatic terms, 
But I, I, I think, it's maybe those who know more about military history than I do, but the, the, the notion that a substantial number of British officers would refuse to obey orders from the legally constituted government is pretty unusual, if not unique, and extraordinary sort of state of affairs. Second chapter, The Guns of Larne. The story here is one Major Crawford, an orange militant, went to Germany, purchased 20,000 modern rifles, 10,000 bayonets, and 3 million rounds of ammunition. It was shipped from Germany into Larne in Northern Ireland. The, the weapons were landed at night, transported inland by motor car, cavalcade, and done successfully without opposition. Afterwards, in the Commons that afternoon, it is true, the Prime Minister denounced the gun running as a, quote, grave and unprecedented outrage and threatened appropriate steps. Two days later, a note from the Cabinet to the King promised, quote, instant and effective action, but nothing was done. Why not? Because they were genuinely unsure of the loyalty of the army in Ireland. Uh, and as I say, I, I think this is quite extraordinary. And it's also extraordinary that the gun running was coming from Germany, the feared enemy. There was also some gun running from the nationalist side, but it was more limited, and there was resistance to that. But what you certainly have is a fear, you were headed towards civil war between the nationalists and the Ulster Protestants. So that was the, the, the two bits about Ireland. The suffragettes. Dangerfield summarises the situation as he sees it in the early months of 1914. While the army refused to move against Ulster, the government persisted in its intention to clutter the statute book with the meaningless provisions of an amended Home Rule Bill. The situation, farcical enough as it was, was rendered even more so by the violent speeches of eminent men. Now is the time to recall some of those speeches. Major Crawford, that's the gunrunner, for instance, had told the people of Bangor that, quote, if we are put out of the Union, I would infinitely prefer to change my allegiance to the Emperor of Germany. Another loyalist, J Captain James Craig, there is a spirit spreading abroad, which I can testify from my personal knowledge, that Germany and the German Empire would be preferable to the rule of the Molly Maguires. He concludes, what could be expected of a liberal democracy whose parliament had practically ceased to function, whose government was futile and whose opposition had said enough to put lesser men in the dock for treason? Pretty sort of uh, interesting situation. And the suffragette campaign continued. Dangerfield again. The record of suffragette arson for the first seven months of 1914 was an impressive one. No less than 107 buildings were set on fire. Mrs. Pankert's record was no, no less impressive. Between 9th of March and 18th of July, she was imprisoned four more times and endured four more hunger strikes. In May in 1914, there was a big demonstration in London and 66 suffragettes were arrested. At, at their trials, the suffragettes then started asking why they were being prosecuted and Sir Edward Carson and the Ulster Protestants were not being prosecuted. Uh, militant action continued in July. The third rebellion of the workers, the Triple Alliance, Dangerfield does acknowledge that the, there wasn't a surge of strikes in 1914. The peak was in 1912. But he cites this Triple Alliance of miners, railwomen, and transport workers as being the, the, the potential flashpoint. And details a situation in Scotland. 
In July, the coal owners declared they could no longer pay the district minimum of day wage of seven shillings, that they were obliged to reduce it in most localities to six shillings. To the miners' rank and file, this was the final challenge. It was evident that the Miners' Federation of Great Britain would take issue with the Scottish coal owners, that the transport workers and railway men would join in, and that in September 14, or at la latest October, there would be an appalling national struggle over the question of the living wage. And then he sums it up. The great general strike of 1914, forestalled by some bullets at Sarajevo, has slipped away into the limbo of unfinished arguments. This, really, uh, bit is conjecture, because we don't know. It never happened. What we do know is the trade union leaders weren't planning it, but then D Dangerfield is positing a situation of, of considerable conflict, and that there could be. What would have happened next? Well, we, we don't really know, because on the 28th of June 1914, Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, as we heard about in the talk earlier, and it set in train the sequence of events that were to lead to World War I uh, happening by early August. In this situation where it was leading towards war, what then happened? The workers. Since when war was declared, the Scottish mine owners withdrew their demand for a reduction and the Triple Alliance suddenly forgot about the minimum wage and labour and capital joined hands in a frenzy of patriotic enthusiasm. How about the suffragettes? In September, Christabel Pankhurst, who'd been in exile in Paris, returned to London to give a discourse on, quote, the German peril. Mrs. Pankhurst, with a characteristic enthusiasm, sounded the same note. So in lo loyal fervor and jingoistic enterprise ended the great women's revolt. In Parliament, Bonalore speaks in, in a debate, and then John Redmond, the Irish nationalist leader, arose to speak. <laughs> no one knew what he was going to say. This is just before the, the war breaks out. There are in Ireland, he said, two large bodies of volunteers. One of them sprang into existence in the south. I say to the government that they may tomorrow withdraw every one of their troops from Ireland. I say that the coasts of Ireland will be defended from foreign invasion by her sons. And for this purpose, armed nationalist Catholics in the south will only be too glad to join arms with the armed Protestant Ulstermen in the north. We offer to the government of the day that they may take their troops away, and that if it is allowed to us, in comradeship with our brethren in the north, we will ourselves defend the coasts of our country. He sat down. The applause, intermittent at first, had grown deafening. Along the packed Tory benches, papers were being waved, and the men who had been his bitterest enemies stood up to cheer him. And as we do know, Ireland was not completely quiet during uh, World War I, but the war started in that sort of spirit, with all three rebellions not gradually coming to a halt, but suddenly coming to a halt. Bit of an assess general assessment then. If you read History of the Period, you'll find many re reference to this book as being a remarkable book and a brilliant book. The title certainly li lives on. If you go on Wikipedia, you'll find this strange death. I, I mentioned the strange death of Tory England. There's a book apparently on the strange death of Republican USA, a strange death of Liberal USA, and even better, the strange non-death of neoliberalism. 
But the general view is that he over-dramatizes. Brilliant, but tends to be the way that it's portrayed. Specifically about the liberals, there are different views. Some historians see the crucial shift in upper and middle class votes going to the Tory party as happening in the 1880s and 1890s. Effectively a rise of class voting whereby there's this shift. You can certainly see that in the House of Lords. The Whig aristocracy increasingly simply went over to the Tory party, leaving the Whig stroke Liberal Party heavily dependent upon working class votes and on the votes of the labouring man and why should the labouring man vote for them when a Labour Party started to exist? Maybe things were happening well before that in the 1890s and the 1906 election was a bit of an aberration. That's not incompatible with what Dangerfield's thesis is. The, it, the, the decomposition happened before the war, deep-seated trends, that's not incompatible. Other historians see liberals in fair shape in 1914 and really hit by the effects of the war. The government has to do profoundly illiberal things like conscription. In the middle of the war, there's a split between the Lloyd George liberals and Asquith liberals. And the view that it, the, the division and uh, decline happens at that point is incompatible with what Dangerfield's arguing. Others still see a fatal decline only after war with a continued liberal split between Lloyd George and Asquith and also in 1918 with the extension of the suffrage. Voting for women over the age of 30 came in in 1918 but so did the vote for all adult males and quite a lot of adult males who were not property owners did not have the vote before that. And some historians point to that because in 1918, the electorate trebled all the women over the age of 30 and quite a lot of the men who weren't property owners. But irrespective of these rival views, at some point, the Liberal Party did die in a way. And 19th century liberalism did fade away. Dangerfield, writing in the early 1930s, emphasised that there had been no Liberal government since then and it's true subsequently. The only episode is the coalition, obviously, which was not led by the Liberals. He was proved right. Unlike the strange death of Tory England, when a, a potential crisis was not proved right. To sum up, really, the idea that Britain was only saved by the outbreak of World War I, which is what Dangerfield effectively is saying, is probably too extreme. But I do think, in an eloquent book, that Dangerfield does capture something of the spirit of the times and the way things are moving. And it was not an idyllic summer with England at peace with itself. He pretty much demolishes that irretrievably. Eric Hobsbawm, an eminent historian, acknowledges that Dangerfield is unreliable in some ways, but still the most exciting way to start looking at the nation's history during this period. So, a remarkable book. I uh, hope you've enjoyed sort of hearing about it. You'll have, I think, known from me reading out the extracts why I decided not to try and paraphrase it. Thank you. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. 
This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Mm-hmm.